Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 182, Ragnar Lothbrok. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to an episode on the lives of Scandinavians and learning the answer to questions like, did the Vikingers have a retirement program? And spoiler alert, yeah, they did. And no, you really wouldn't like it. Anyway, if you'd like to hear that episode and all the other members' episodes, you can sign up to support the show by going over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Rodri, Evelyn, and Jose for signing up already. Now, I've been getting a lot of emails about my use of the Old Norse word Vikinger, and people have been wondering what it means. A Vikinger is someone who goes a Viking. The reason why I tend to use that term rather than just saying Viking is twofold. First, I like to bring old words back, which is why I tend to use the word werod when talking about Anglo-Saxon warbands. But second, because most people think Viking applies to all Scandinavians from this period. So by saying Vikinger, I'm trying to make it really clear that we're just talking about a small group of people who went to Viking. And the vast majority of Scandinavians, you know, the ones who stayed home and farmed, weren't Vikings. They didn't go a Viking. They weren't Vikingers. They were Scandinavians. Fair? Okay, so when we left off, a fleet of 120 ships set sail from Scandinavia. And at their head, according to legend, was Ragnar Lothbrok. Ragnar Harry Breaches. Which sounds a lot cooler in Old Norse than it does in English, but what can you do? Now, typically, I don't do a deep dive into a single character who lives outside of our borders. Instead, I just try and give you enough bare-bones material to fill in the gaps, while keeping the focus upon Britain. For example, you know about how Pope Leo III was assaulted by a mob of ruffians and nearly had his eyes and tongue torn out, and how he had to flee to Charlemagne's protection. And you know that because that act directly impacted the story of King Offa of Mercia. Consequently, it mattered to us. But there's a lot that you don't know about Pope Leo III, and I'll prove it to you. Take a moment, Google him, and have a look at his portraits. Go on. I'll wait. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Those eyebrows are on fleek. He seriously had some of the best eyebrows in the business, but stuff like that gets left out of the show all the time. And for good reason. If I followed every rabbit hole, this show would grind to a halt. But because we're coming up on a major character in our story, we're going to deviate from normal programming in this episode and go into some depth on the life of the famous Norseman, Ragnar Lothbrok. Or at least we're going to go into what the sagas and other sources had to tell us. And I'm doing this for two reasons. First, because according to the legends, Ragnar, and in particular his sons, would go on to completely change the face of Britain. And second, because the History Channel got so much wrong about Ragnar that it left me sounding a bit like this. not true. That's impossible. And I kind of wanted to fix that. So here we go. To begin with, who was Ragnar Lothbrok? Well, it's kind of hard to say. 
It seems like there was, in fact, a Norse war leader named Ragnar, and it does seem like he was the one who led that fleet of 120 ships. But as for his life story and where he comes from, that gets a great deal messier and also confusing. A lot of what we hear about Ragnar comes from a single source called the Gesta Denorum. The Gesta Denorum was a 12th century collection of stories written by Saxo Grammaticus, which translates to Saxo the Literate. The trouble with it is that it seems that, in large part, the Gesta was taken from a whole variety of stories, and Saxo just tried to tie them all together into one moderately coherent narrative. Now, members are going to remember how Snorri, who was responsible for a lot of what we know about the Norse religion, also seems to have been compiling multiple myths into a single story. The analogy I used there was that this approach was akin to blindly compiling every recipe for sausages in the world in order to make a single true sausage, and then using that recipe as the definitive sausage anytime sausages were mentioned. Well, it seems that something similar may have been happening with the life story of Ragnar Lothbrok. And his life very well may be a collection of events attributable to a whole variety of Scandinavian leaders. And thus far, historians have failed to link them all to a specific individual. Instead, they seem to have elements of King Horik, King Regenfred, a couple Scandinavian nobles, the guy who besieged Paris, and of course, the father of the leaders of the great heathen army. And then, just to spice it up, some mythic events were added in as well. Not only that, but like Snorri, Saxo was a Christian, and writing centuries later from a different cultural and religious point of view. So he was writing about these events from an outside perspective. Frankly, much of what we know about the Norse religion, culture, and history comes from outside perspectives. And that alone should make you very skeptical on the whole thing. One of our main sources is basically the equivalent of someone from Japan deciding to write the history of America with little to no understanding of American culture. And then, in the telling of the story of George Washington, they combined him with Madison, Franklin, Jefferson, Adams, and Hamilton. And then they added a couple myths about cherry trees, never lying, wooden teeth, and, oh, what the hell, the story about Paul Bunyan and his blue ox. So that's our starting point for talking about Ragnar Lothbrok's story. It's a mess, especially for historians, because looking into his life is a bit like doing a fact-based investigation on the life of Moses. Once you start kicking stones and looking for supporting records out of Egypt, it gets messy really fast. Consequently, you have factions of historians who are all arguing about Ragnar. Some say that he's based in history, and that a Ragnar existed but things may have been added to him to bolster his legend, either from historical figures or from pure imagination. And that does carry some degree of weight, since we do have a guy named Regan Harris, which basically translates to Ragnar, sieging Paris. And we have the great heathen army being led by the sons of Ragnar. Other historians, however, suggest that he's pure literary convention, and that he never existed. And that also carries weight, because they can point to the fact that while his sons are historical figures, there is no evidence that Ragnar ever existed. Look at it this way. You know that I exist. You're listening to me right now. But if I said, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, son of Alan, son of Woden. Well, that's not going to provide proof that Woden exists. 
despite my father's insistence that he's secretly the Thunder God. So just because you have one verifiable fact doesn't make the whole story true, especially when you're dealing with so much mythic and contradictory content. And I'm beating you over the head with this because I want to make it very clear. I don't want you listening to this episode and thinking that you're listening to a factual record. It should become pretty clear as we go forward, but I wanted to make sure you know that, because you really aren't. There are no complete factual accounts of the life of Ragnar Lothbrok. There's just stories that were recorded many centuries after the fact, and an effort by people like Saxo to compile them into a single narrative. Alright, so with that out of the way, what do the stories tell us about the life of Ragnar Lothbrok? Well, to start with, Ragnar Lothbrok, at least as a name, was something that wouldn't pop up for about 300 years after his apparent death. I mean, there are statements about Ragnars, and there are statements of Lothbroks, but not Ragnar Lothbrok. Not only that, but some have even argued that Lothbrok, or Lothbroka as a name, is written in a feminine form. And they make the argument that Lothbroka could have been one of Ragnar's wives. It's not an uncontroversial stance, but it could account for why we see the sons of Ragnar and the sons of Lothbrok, but we rarely see the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok. It could also account for the hairy breeches. Lothbroka might just have been a particularly furry woman. So within this lies the possibility that Ragnar Lothbrok may have been at least two people, possibly even a husband and wife team. So we should keep that in mind as well as we go forward in the legend. But let's move on and see what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle can tell us about this man, since that is our primary source for this period, and part of his legend does involve him coming to Britain. Well, it turns out that the Chronicle doesn't mention Ragnar, Lothbrok, Harry Breaches, or any other combination of those titles whatsoever. Later on, it does mention some brothers who led the Danes in their war against the Anglo-Saxons. And in other sources and sagas, those brothers are said to be the sons of Ragnar. But as for a direct reference in the Chronicle, even as the father of the known leaders that were included by the scribes, there simply aren't any. We don't even get a single such-and-such son of Ragnar. There's nothing. And that's vital to how we judge the story of his life. Because in many of the later legends, we're told that Ragnar not only came to Britain, but he ended his life there. That's a pretty big gap in the contemporary record. Now, it is possible that it occurred, but it simply wasn't recorded, because the Chronicle is generally focused upon Wessex rather than the North, like Northumbria. However, it is something that we should keep in mind when we're talking about this period. Now, if the Chronicle was our only source, this would be a pretty short episode. But thankfully, it's not, and so we can turn to other areas to learn about the life of Ragnar. And that will lead us to the Gesta Denorum and several other sagas. And interestingly, in the initial details, they sort of agree on the rough outlines of who Ragnar Lothbrok was. They tell us that Ragnar was the son of King Sigurd Hring, or in the Gesta, he was the son of King Seward, who was probably the same guy. Now, King Hring was rather important, because aside from having a tongue twister of a name, he was also a fairly well-known king. And this part is important. He was a legendary king. And not like, oh man, that pizza was legendary. 
but more like actually legend. Like, David Cameron's concern for Scottish welfare is legendary. And while Hring was mentioned in several sagas, it's pretty clear that he was just legend. Frankly, the sagas easily could have just told us that Ragnar was the son of Woden, or Gandalf, or Tom Hiddleston. So right from the start, Ragnar's family was legendary. Something else important to note is that none of the sources mention a birth date for Ragnar. That's one of the many holes in the story that cast doubt upon it. But we can make some approximations based on the things that we think we know. Assuming that he lived, and the rough details were close to the truth, we can make some guesses. Given that, depending on the sources, we're told that he had at least two marriages and as many as nine children, he was probably born somewhere before 795. Though just how much before is really hard to say. But say he was born right around 795. That would put him in his 40s when he was a Jarl leading a fleet to Paris. And if he died in Britain, he would have been in his 60s when that happened. So probably sometime around 795 is a fair guess. And as for where he was born, oh, who knows? Some say he served a Danish king named Horik, so it is possible he might have been born in Denmark. But elsewhere, he's named as the son of a legendary king who ruled over not just Denmark, but also Sweden. So really, he could have been born anywhere. Now overall, the stories agree that Ragnar was large, good-looking, generous, intelligent, and unbending to his enemies. He was also one of the most effective and powerful war leaders around. And that brings us to the first story of the life of Ragnar. And it comes from the Gesta. Here we have Ragnar, son of King Seward, attending a war council. And he was very young at this point, but he was also reportedly very wise. The reason why they're having this council is that there was a big concern over brewing tensions between the king, his cousin, who was a guy named Ring, and the king of Norway. After listening for a while, Ragnar spoke up and told the leaders that, quote, the short bow shoots its shaft suddenly, end quote. Now to me, that sounds like a dick joke wrapped in military advice. And judging from the tone of what follows, I think that may be exactly what it was. But nonetheless, all the old guys present were really impressed, and they listened to him, just stunned by how poignant Ragnar's premature advice was. But in the end, it was all largely for naught. And long story short, following Ragnar's speech, a fight kicked up between King Seward and his cousin, Ring, and they both died within days. This left the throne empty, and Ragnar succeeded to the crown. But apparently, in the interim, the king of Norway enslaved all of Seward's kin and put them into brothels. This enraged Ragnar, and he marched out to free them. Saxo tells us that the situation of Ragnar's kin was so dire that many of the women dressed as men, preferring that, quote, shame, end quote, over forced prostitution. Among these women was Ligurtha, who Saxo describes as an Amazon maiden with the courage of a man. Podcaster's side note. I suspect that Saxo was struggling to reconcile the Christian European view of women being weak and helpless with the tales of Scandinavian warrior women. One way to reconcile this was probably to understand it through a lens of the threat of rape. Ligurtha would only engage in the male sphere of battle and dress as a man if she was trying to avoid violence. 
He may have just been unable to imagine that she was a warrior at heart. Anyway, Ragnar, his warriors, and Ligurtha banded together and killed the king of Norway. Ligurtha was so critical to this battle that Ragnar attributed his victory to her prowess. And understandably, he wanted to marry her. He and I apparently had the same type. So, he set out to woo her and sent her messages. And she turned him down. So he sent more messages. And she turned those down too. But Ragnar was not taking the hint. And apparently, it got so bad that she had to put a dog and a bear in front of her door to guard it. So, what does romantic Ragnar do? He goes to her home, and he kills the dog and the bear. And that impressed her. So she married him, and they had two unnamed daughters and a son named Friedleif. Kind of odd, but okay. And then we're told that they were married for three years, before he divorced her because he had an animal attraction for another maiden. However, Ragnar, our hero, blamed the divorce on the fact that she was an adventuring warrior. Really, that's in the Gesta. And what the hell, Ragnar? I get that long-distance relationships are hard, but it's not like she hid who she was. Did you really just expect her to stay at home? But apparently, that's what he did. And now we're going to switch sources, because the story about the new lady is best told in the 13th century Icelandic sagas, The Tale of Ragnar's Sons and The Tale of Ragnar Lothbrok. So the sagas tell us about a particularly gorgeous daughter of a local noble, who is either the ruler of southern Sweden or one of Ragnar's vassals, depending on which saga you trust. Her name was Thora. In fact, she was so beautiful that she was known as the heart of the town. Not a beating heart, but an adult male red deer. This was a compliment, by the way. Hearts were considered the most beautiful of all animals, and so they were saying that she was the most beautiful of all the people in the town. By the way, telling a woman that her face reminds me of a buck has never gotten me very far, but these were simpler times. Anyway, despite being as pretty as a boy deer, there was still a problem with Thora that was keeping her single. Ever since she was a child, she had a snake that she kept in a little box, and then she kept some gold under that box. This was before Banks. Well, the snake grew and grew, and we're told that the gold underneath it also grew, presumably because that's how compound interest works. And before long, the snake was too big for the box, and instead, it stayed in the grove, eating and, I don't know, doing snake things. But this was no normal snake. It must have had some sort of hormonal issue, because it got so big that it encircled the local grove, and then it bit its own tail. This was a problem for the locals, not just because it was big and scary, but now they couldn't get into the grove. But apparently it was not so much of a problem that they stopped feeding it. The scared villagers were giving it an ox every day, and I guess it stopped biting its own tail long enough to eat the ox. And then it went right back to its duties of ruining picnic day for everyone. So the local noble, who was Thora's dad, said if anyone could kill the snake, they could marry Thora. No big deal, said Ragnar, and he put on a shaggy outfit and concealed his identity with a cloak and hood. And then he covered himself in tar and rolled in the sand. 
I don't know how the locals reacted to this, but I'm guessing that it must have been the best entertainment they'd seen in months. So, once the strange, furry, sticky, sandy warrior stood up, he grabbed a shield and spear, and he approached the grove. There was a fight. And some say that the snake sprayed venom at him, and Ragnar's odd outfit protected him. Others say that it wasn't until Ragnar struck the snake with his spear that he needed a special outfit, for the snake's blood itself was poisonous, and it sprayed onto his back. Regardless of which story you go with, the sources agree that Ragnar had just killed a giant snake, and he was kept safe with the aid of his sticky ghillie suit. And when his foe was finally bested, Ragnar spoke in verse. Quote, I have risked my famous life, beautiful woman, 15 years old, and I vanquished the earth fish. Near misfortune, a swift death for me, save I have pierced well to the heart, the ringed salmon of the heath. End quote. This was basically the Viking version of shouting, Nailed it! And then he walked away. We aren't told how Thora reacted, but that was an absolutely killer mic drop. Anyway, so the mystique of this shaggy warrior grew, and eventually the lords organized a thing to determine who he was. Ragnar and a great deal of other nobles attended the thing. There it was revealed that a spearhead had been dug out of the snake's corpse and it still had part of the shaft attached to it. It was agreed to that they would all try and join the spearhead to the noble's spear shafts. Apparently, nobles never threw anything away or even repaired their broken shafts, but instead just brought them around to great councils. Anyway, it was decided that if one fit properly, that noble would marry Thora. And it turned out that Ragnar's shaft was just right. And... That's how Ragnar married Thora, heart of the town. A little later, after she gave birth to Eric and Agnar, Thora got sick, and she died. This broke Ragnar's heart, and he left his duties of rule and instead went back to his previous duties, which I assume were raiding and killing giant fauna. Sometime later, Ragnar and his men harbored in the north. Ragnar set his men about getting dinner prepared, and then did... I don't know, something. He was off doing something. Anyway, so Ragnar's men had a task. They needed to get food ready, and so they tried to recruit a woman named Grimma to join them. But she refused, and instead offered up her daughter to help them with dinner. There was a couple problems with this, though. First, Grimma admitted that she could not control her daughter. And second, her daughter was nowhere to be seen. This daughter's name, by the way, was Kraka, and she did what she wanted. Only earlier that day, Grimma had specifically told Kraka not to bathe, because she didn't want Ragnar and his men to see how pretty she was. And so guess what Kraka was doing at that exact moment? That's right, bathing. Not only that, but she was doing her hair, which the sagas speak about like they're doing a Pantene commercial. Apparently it was amazing. And she was also dressing in flowing silks. Needless to say, when she finally came back, she made quite the entrance. So much so that Ragnar's men didn't even believe that Kraka and Grimma were related, saying that they couldn't believe that someone that beautiful was the child of someone so ugly. They actually called her monstrous during this, and I'm sure that Grimma loved hearing that. But somehow she kept from stabbing the Vikingers and let them go about their business, baking bread for Ragnar's dinner. 
But because they were as talented at baking as they were tactful, they burned the bread. When Ragnar returned, he asked what happened with the bread, and they blamed it on Kraka's beauty. Ragnar was not buying it, but his men insisted that she really was as beautiful as Thora was, and so it wasn't their fault. This intrigued Ragnar, and so he decided he wanted to see this woman for himself. But he also said that if they were wrong, they would be terribly punished. Now, I've thought about this, and the only conclusion I can come to is that Ragnar really took baked goods seriously, because that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to punish the hell out of you for burning the bread unless this woman is ungodly beautiful. So far, the main lesson that I've learned from these sagas is don't mess with Ragnar's muffins. But anyway, so Ragnar wasn't just satisfied with seeing the beautiful Kraka. He also wanted to test her wits. Because what better way to land a first date than to ask someone to jump through a whole bunch of neurotic hoops? So, Ragnar sent a message to Kraka with a riddle. He insisted that she come, quote, neither dressed nor undressed, neither fed nor unfed, and she must be not alone, but no man may accompany her. End quote. This message was sent to Kraka. After some thought and some preparation, Kraka approached the ship. She was clad in trout net and let her long hair drape over her. She was eating a leek, and she brought with her her dog. Ragnar was really impressed that she solved the riddle. And then she went right over the top with it by speaking to him in verse to which he answered in poetry, because flirting used to be way more hardcore. Long story short, they got married, and it turns out that Kraka was Aslog, the daughter of Sigurd Fafnir's Bane and Brunhilde. So she had quite the background. And she gave birth to Ivor, who would later be known as Ivor the Boneless, Bjorn Ironside, Vitserk, and Sigurd Snake in the Eye, who was called that because he had a weird-looking iris. So that's what the Icelandic sagas tell us about Ragnar's backstory. And actually, the story of Thora is roughly in line with Agesta. But curiously, the Aslog Kraka story is left entirely out of the Gesta. I'm not sure why. But needless to say, all three marriages do appear to have been rather mythic, not to mention contradictory to each other. And we should keep that in mind when we consider that these are also the sources that we turn to when we talk about Ragnar's later trip to Britain. But let's jump back to the Gesta, because it includes an interesting postscript to all these Viking romances. Apparently, thanks to seditious hearts, the Jutes and the people of Skuana launched a civil war against Ragnar, seeking to side with a rival noble named Harald. And so Ragnar sought help from Norway. And guess who still loved him and showed up to help as well? Ligurtha. And she brought 120 ships with her. And, along with Ragnar, they defeated the forces of Harald, Jutland, and Skuana. After the battle, Saxo tells us that Ligurtha went home, murdered her husband, and usurped his kingdom. And I have quite a few thoughts regarding why Saxo and his sources might have included this. But anyway, given the mythic nature of these stories, and the fact that none of them can agree on the details, and many of them are in direct contradiction with regard to the marriages and the parentage of certain children, it does make the entire account rather suspect. 
And that's something that is not helped by the fact that none of these stories directly mention the Siege of Paris, even though that's one of the key historical events that we can tie to a person named Ragnar. They don't talk about it at all. But damn it, we will. Next time. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you really should join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast, and it's more fun than you would think. So make sure you go and follow us there. And you can join all our other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Do you think Pope Leo plucked his eyebrows?